Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We're going to be picking back up on page 74, looking at the topic of justification and wending its way into the topic of faith. So we'll do a quick review and move on into the new material right after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. If we go back to question 148 on page 74, find your way to the bottom of the answer to that question, and then work your way up one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines from the bottom, this will give us a succinct review for where we were and where we're going to be picking back up. Chemnitz writes, And since this righteousness of Christ rendered for us is perfect, sufficient, and abundant, and can stand before the judgment seat of God, therefore God has promised that he would impute it to believers just as if they rendered it themselves. And here the scriptural quotations are Romans 3.22, Romans 4.23-25, and Romans 5.18. He continues, And thus believers absolutely have, not indeed in themselves, but in Christ, true and genuine righteousness through which they are justified before God. Right? So the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to us is a righteousness apart from the law, apart from the works of the law or the fulfillment of the law on our part. Of course, Christ fulfills the law on our behalf, and that is our righteousness. And that is credited, imputed, reckoned. Those are all similar words for the same idea unto us. Okay, then question 149. Are all men justified and saved because of this righteousness of the Son of God? Answer, the way is broad that leads to damnation, and there are many that walk in it, Matthew 7.13. So there's our Lord's own answer. Okay, question 150, what then is the reason? Did Christ not make satisfaction for all? Or does the Heavenly Father not want this benefit to be common to all? Answer. The cause or fault of damnation is by no means to be ascribed to God, for Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Uh, 1 John 2, 2. So what you have there is propitiation, which is the language of atonement. So the putting forth of the blood of Christ. Um, This language comes from and has resonance with the idea of the blood of the Lamb poured out on the mercy seat, the top of the ark. So that hilasterion, that covering of the ark, 
that is done in performance for the atonement of the sins of the people each year, of course, superseded now by Christ, who did it once and for all. So he's the propitiation, and not for our sins only, nor for any select group of people, but for the whole world. So both those points in view here, Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, Chemnitz continues, and the will of God is that no one should perish, but that all should be saved. And there are a slew of verses quoted there, but of course the language reflects 1 Timothy uh, 2.4. God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, so the answer continues, but it is by the fault of men that not all are saved, because not all accept that benefit. And Scripture references from John's Gospel here. For it is necessary that the benefit or merit of Christ becomes or become ours, Romans 8.32. That is, that it be applied to us so that each one accept and apprehend it, and thus Christ be in us, and we be found in him. So what this paragraph does, even though Chemnitz doesn't here use the language, what this paragraph does is articulates for us a distinction. You have justification, that's the coin. One side of justification is objective justification. The other side is subjective justification. Objective justification is the fact that Christ's death on the cross has made atonement for the sins of the world. That is the heart of the gospel. We go out and preach the accomplished fact that the sins of the world have been atoned for, that God has reconciled himself to man. So the gospel doesn't come off as a conditional. God's done 99%, you just have to do 1%. God's written you the billion-dollar check, all you have to do is sign your name. Now, this kind of talk, it's not a sales pitch, it's not an agreement. It's something, that's, it's something that is accomplished and thus is truly good news, whether you accept it or not, whether you receive it or not. And it's an objective fact. It's sort of like announcing to people who have their eyes closed that the sun is out and it's light. <laughs> it's an objective fact. Okay? They can open their eyes and see for themselves and receive that light, or they can stubbornly close their eyes and, at least for they themselves, dwell in darkness. But objectively, there's light and light everywhere. Okay, so the other side of the coin is subjective justification. You saw the reference to Romans. I mean, Romans is just the, the Sadies, the seat of this distinction and doctrine. And that is that just because all men are objectively have their sins atoned for, that, the benefits of that need to be apprehended by faith. It's to be received by faith. And so not all are saved on account of their unbelief, their to use my analogy, and all analogies break down when it comes to this, especially all analogies have their weaknesses, but for those who demand to keep their eyes shut, declaring that it's dark, okay, then the, it isn't light to you, is it? But that's on you, not on God, who's clearly made it light and clearly declared it to be light and told you, open your eyes, and you stubbornly refuse. Um, that's on you. And so that's what this particular answer is getting at, 
that while justification is objective and universal, it doesn't mean that all are universally saved. The fault lies with them, not with God. Okay, any thoughts? So far, so good? All right. Yeah, please. Quick question. Um, In terms of using the right verb, do we receive... Christ and, and the gift, or how, how do you word that, maybe maybe not in the context of your analogy, but just, mm-hmm. but it was the right way to say that man receives faith, is it? Yeah, so the language isn't so much what's important as just the concept. The underlying concept is our passive receiving so you can use the language of receive or accept or um, believe. I mean, all of those. And there's probably others that just aren't flooding into my mind right this second. Um, yeah, imputed would kind of be the other side of that. Imputed would be like what God's doing. And then faith receives it, apprehends it, believes it, trusts it, that kind of language. The key is to realize... Uh, so here, here a, a decent analogy would be all right, God has um, wine to pour out for you that will gladden your heart. But you have no cup. So if he pours it out, it's not going to benefit you. So he gives you the cup. That's faith. Now does the cup itself quench your thirst? No. So faith in this sense is just a vessel, but even that vessel is given to you. And then he pours into it the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. You see, so he gives you the cup and then gives you the goods. The cup in this analogy is passive. You can see because it doesn't quench thirst, it only receives. So he gives you the cup and he pours it in. That's, that's kind of an analogy. Again, all na- analogies break down. They all have their weak points, especially when it comes to this doctrine because you, you kind of flip it the other way and all of a sudden the analogy looks weak. Um, you're, if you're trying to articulate objective justification, you use an analogy, it's great, and then as soon as you flip it around to subjective, you immediately see the weakness. Well, the same is true on the other side. If you use an analogy, like I am with a cop and this kind of thing, if you flip it around and start to look at that, then with scrutiny from the objective side, you'll see the weakness pretty much right away. So as we're meditating on the subjective nature, the nature of faith, um, Faith is like a cup in that it receives, and it's not something we poor beggars can produce ourselves. It's handed to us, and it's the receptacle into which God pours all his graces and benefits. Okay, so the the technical language for this is that God gives you the gift of faith, and faith has these two components, fides passiva and fides activa, which is really easy Latin to remember. Passive faith and active faith. When God gives you the gift of faith, you don't get just passive and you don't get just active. You get faith. But faith has these two qualities. The first quality is the justifying quality. That's the passive quality, that it receives all the benefits of Christ. That's the chalice. That's the cup receiving. The second aspect of faith, though, is that it's active. It's a living, active thing that's already doing good before it's even told to, as Luther says. 
Not that it doesn't need to be told to. <laughs> but uh, not at least that the Christian doesn't need to be told to, to clarify our category. But the point being, you don't get just passive. Faith comes as a unit, and it has a passive quality, which is the justification side, and it has an active quality, which is the sanctification side, the renewal, the, um, the change of heart, a heart of stone to a living heart, the change of the will, as we're going to get to, to where the will is before conversion, antithetical to God, and he converts the will so that after conversion, the will begins to cooperate with God. Again, all on account of his strength and his doing and everything else. It's not like we take credit and say, oh, you're welcome, God, you know. Um, that's not the point. But the point being that the change he, and renewal he affects in us is real. And it's ontic. It has to do with our being. It has to do with an actual concrete change in our nature. Okay, so that was maybe more than you asked for. Apologies. Anything else we want to chat about? Okay, so then let's go on to question 151. By what means is Christ or the merit of Christ applied to us? Answer. For that application, two things are absolutely required. First, that God, through the Holy Spirit, set forth, offer, present, and give to us that benefit. For this purpose, God has established a certain means or instrument, namely the word of the gospel and the sacraments. That means is, as it were, the hand of God, which extends and opens to us, offering and presenting to us the merit and benefits of his Son for our salvation. All right, and a number of scriptures given there. Okay, let's go on and then we'll summarize. The other thing that is required for application is that we apprehend, receive, and apply to ourselves the benefit of the sons of God that is offered and presented to us in the Word and the Sacraments. This is done by no other means or instruments than faith. For faith is, as it were, our hand with which we take, apprehend, and accept the benefits of Christ. John 1.12 And it is a kind of bond by which we are bound to Christ that he might be and dwell in us and that we might be found in him. All right, so we know that we're spiritually beggars and blessed are the poor in spirit precisely because we realize that's what we are. So with the analogy of spiritual beggars, think of a beggar you might have pity on when you see him lying in the street and you want to give him money and you say, here you go, and he goes like this. Here you go, and he goes, here you go, and he finally goes, okay, and he takes it, and he looks at you and says, you know, this is all on account of me reaching out my hand, so you're welcome. Wait, that doesn't even make sense. I just gave you $5, 
shouldn't you be saying thank you? No, 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 no. I raised my hand and took it. You're welcome. Okay, so there's a kind of absurdity here uh, when we try to take credit by an act of our will, an act of our decision, an act of our choosing. Uh, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't be afraid of or ashamed of even active language, like reaching out your hand and taking. That's the analogy he's using. Because even when you reach out your hand and take, it's still complete charity from God. It's still complete gift from God. You know, a similar analogy, if you're out eating at a restaurant and it's just a wonderful, fantastic food, you don't say, well, my compliments to me because I'm the one who shoveled it into my mouth with the fork. You say, my compliments to the chef. That was a wonderful restaurant. That was wonderful service. So even though you're active in some sense, you're cutting the food up and putting it in your mouth and you're chewing and you're swallowing, obviously the whole thing is received, right? And in our analogy, of course, it works better if the check doesn't come at the end. (laughs) (laughs) But the point is, who on earth would take credit? So you see that even though there's action involved, the whole thing is passive, I mean, the same thing is true, like, is baptism the work of God or man? Well, in the Bible, it's clearly the work of God. The things done through baptism are things only God can do. Washing away sins, you can take as many showers as you want and not wash away a single sin. That's not within our power. Being buried with Christ into a death like his, how can you do that? Becoming a son of God, being born from above. That's not within our power. These are things God does through baptism. But you always get kind of this smart aleck, fallen human nature that says, yeah, but the pastor's the one that does it with the water, and I'm the one that gets dressed that Sunday and drives to church, and I'm the one that chooses to do it, and I'm the one that goes there, so, you know, I'm kind of meeting God halfway. (laughs) Every bit as absurd as the previous two analogies I've used with, while you're sitting at a restaurant taking credit for the meal just because you shoveled it in your mouth, or... Um, you're, you're homeless on the street and you're taking credit for reaching out and grabbing the 20 that's handed to you. Okay? So those kinds of things are absurd. And so that's what I mean by the argument isn't really in what particular language you use, receives, accepts, apprehends, believes, trusts. The argument is conceptual. Does all credit go to God or are you stealing some of the credit for yourself? You see what I mean? That's really where the rubber hits the road. Do you give all glory to God, or do you give him like 99%? (laughs) And you're doing the the 1% that's truly necessary, right? Because then then you see how that logic works. That if God does 99% for everybody, but the determinative percent as to whether you're in heaven or hell is the 1% that you do, what is actually the effective Amount because it's not one percent anymore. Now it's one hundred percent up to you versus one hundred percent up to the person who's in hell. You see, so it's just a clever way of st- and of looking like we're being humble and just taking credit for one percent. Meanwhile, deceiving ourselves and others, taking one hundred percent credit for the fact that we're in heaven and Jones isn't because I chose and made a decision for Jesus and. That poor bugger didn't. 
So you can see then um, the ways that people fall into error in regard to this particular doctrine and the ways that we can stay out of it as long as we keep our hearts and minds centered on God's word and the concept more than the language, that it's pure gift. Okay, so these two things, this... um, It's the media dodica and the medium lepticon. So the medium lepticon is the gift of faith which receives, which passively receives, and the media dodica are the gifts, the means. So both, both the means of grace or the means of the Holy Spirit proper, that's the first article. And then the second article is faith. That's, and by article, I mean paragraph here under 151. The second one is faith. So both are gifts and both are means through which God justifies us. Just those two means have different natures. Faith to receive and the word and sacraments as the gift proper. Good enough? Okay. On to faith. Page 75, question 152. What is justifying faith of which Scripture speaks? Answer. The definition of faith is well known, but to the unlearned it can most simply be explained thus. The object of faith in general is the word of God. For we ought to apply faith to every word divinely given and revealed. But justifying faith has its own and special object that it seeks in Holy Scripture and that it regards and apprehends, namely, Christ our mediator and the promise of grace, which is given for the sake of Christ. All right? So faith itself is only as good as what that faith is in. So if you have faith on a frosty Midwestern morning that you can make it across the frozen lake, you may very well find out that your faith is misplaced. As one of my fellow seminarians did when we dared him to walk across the seminary lake on the ice. (laughs) It never quite gets cold enough to freeze all the way solid. I mean, it looks like it has, but yeah. So... Obviously, his life wasn't in danger. It's a shallow lake, and he went into his knees, and we all had a good laugh. So your faith is only as good as what you put it in. This is sort of like when people talk about the power of faith. There is a kind of psychological attribute that can be measured, and statistically, it's better to have faith in something, anything. It's better to have hope in something, anything. Um, But that should be distinguished from saving faith. So while while faith itself or hope itself, prayer itself might have some kind of uh, earthly benefit, what we're talking about and the distinction we're making in terms of theology, Christian theology and biblical theology, is that faith and hope and prayer, these things are only as good as the object of them. Properly speaking, prayer isn't powerful. The God to whom you pray is powerful. 
and thus we say that prayer is powerful and properly understood than it is. But in and of itself, it's good to scrutinize and say it isn't. And the same would be true for faith. Faith is only as good as what you put it in. Faith itself isn't strong or virtuous. Faith can be misplaced and is misplaced all the time. Okay, so faith in Christ, the object or benefit, and of course, as he points out, so in regard to salvation, it's faith in the biblical Christ, and in regard just more broadly to our faith, um, generally speaking, it's in God's word. So that's where you're looking at all the articles of the faith as they're handed down to us by God in his word. Yes, please. Are, are you thinking of a specific context? Well, right here. Promise of grace, which is given for the sake of Christ. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So the idea, I think the idea here, I mean, it's a little slippery. <coughs> for the sake of is always a slippery English phrase. Yeah, I think it's, I think generally speaking, and this is used all throughout the Book of Concord, and it's kind of similarly slippery. It's hard to really nail down. I, think, I don't think it means that you're doing Christ a favor. I think we can preclude that, right? Like, otherwise Christ's sacrifice would be wasted. That would be a kind of acceptable English translation, but unacceptable theological translation of for the sake of, right? So I think, I think the language of for the sake of Christ is more on account of what he's done and accomplished. I think that that's, generally speaking, more the sense of when, when Chemnitz uses it, when the Book of Concord uses it. So let me try to... Was that in, was that in 152, the answer? Yeah, right. Okay, so let me, let me see then. But justifying faith has its own and special object. That's the key here in this paragraph, is the object that it seeks in Holy Scripture, and that it regards and apprehends, namely Christ, our mediator, and the promise of grace, grace which is given for the sake of Christ. Yeah, boy, it's slippery there. I would just avoid the meaning, you know, the, the possible meaning, which is a wrong theological understanding, as if we're doing Christ the fav- a favor here. Does anybody have better mastery of that phrase in the English language? Yeah, you have a. Um, I, the way I read it is the the action here um, is being done for us by God mm-hmm. for the sake of Christ. He did it because of the sacrifice of His Son mm-hmm. for us. Mm-hmm. I see. That's where the for the sake of, mm-hmm. is the way I read it comes in. God through Christ to man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Just Here we go, on account of. Yeah. Although that might be a little punt, because it's just, I mean, on account of can be slippery too. Yeah, but, but it's on account of Christ. Yes. You want to clarify one step further? We might benefit. <laughs> For the sake of, uh-huh. uh huh. I don't know. Uh, the, that Sorry, I, need I didn't mean to, to put you on the spot. No, yeah. that, that's okay. I was just thinking that that when I when I read that, that's what comes to my mind. 
which is given on account of Christ, namely yes. Christ's meter and the promise of grace, which is given on account of... Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's better. Yeah. I mean, well, better for me than... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, to, not <laughs> presuming to correct Chemnitz here. Yeah, I like that. On account of? Mm-hmm. I think that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, that's a slippery one. Okay, did we get all that wrapped up? Enough? Yeah? Okay. Good. Thank you all for your contribution. So faith um, is only as good as its object. That's the point here. And God gives us Christ as its object. But how do we know Christ? Through the Word. And then he hasn't gotten there yet, but through the sacraments. So the Word and sacraments become, practically speaking, the object of our faith. Because it's these things that communicate Christ to us. So this is where faith in baptism, that baptism saves you, is faith in Christ. Christ's death on the cross is given to you personally through the waters of holy baptism, right? You could put a really fine point on this and say baptism both saves and doesn't save. Does baptism save apart from the death of Christ? Of course not. Is faith giving a salvation separate than that salvation won for us? By Christ on the cross? Of course not. Okay. But in what sense then does faith save? Because it takes the benefits of Christ's work on the cross and gives them to you. Okay. So the same thing is, is true um, of all the sacraments. The same thing is true of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So do the sacrifices actually forgive sins? You find one place in, in Leviticus that says yes, and you find a place in Hebrews that says no. That's not a contradiction. They're talking about it in just this way I was talking about baptism. Do the sacrifices in and of themselves affect the forgiveness of sins? No. That's the author of Hebrews' point. Okay. Do they affect forgiveness of sins on account of their communicating the shed blood of the Messiah to come, yes, that's Leviticus' point. So, do the sacrifices, if you're an Old Testament saint, do the sacrifices save? Yes, but not in and of themselves, because they communicate the blessings and benefits of Christ to you. Does baptism save? Yes, not in itself, but because it communicates the blessings and benefits of Christ to us. Does that make sense? Okay. It's a subtle point. It's a fine point. But it'll help you kind of understand, you know, what we're doing here is we're popping the hood on, you know, here's this car called Faith. (laughs) And we're popping the hood and we're looking around at the engine and how it works and how the components go. So if you're on board for that, great. If it sounds too complicated, well, just shut the hood and believe in Jesus. <laughs> you'll, you'll end up in the same place. Yeah. I hate to ask this question, but it popped into my head. Mm-hmm. Infant baptism. If the parents are doing it just out of tradition or whatever, mm-hmm. Well, the effectiveness of baptism is never conditioned upon anything a human being is doing, per se. 
as long as it's following the institution of Christ, it's water and his word, validly administered, it's a baptism. But where a pastor might not baptize a child, um, let me, I'll, I'll just paint a picture for you, okay? And um, so imagine that, uh, well, here's the foundation you need. Okay, here's the foundation you need. Matthew 28, let's start there. Go, therefore, and baptize all nations. No, that's not what it says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them whatsoever I have commanded. So the goal, strictly speaking, isn't baptism. The goal, strictly speaking, is making disciples, discipling. And discipling through these two means, baptism and the word. So far, so good? So what happens when you encounter someone who doesn't want their child to become a disciple? They just want their child baptized. And upon further exploration, it's just to please grandma and grandpa. And there's no chance whatsoever that they're going to raise this child in the Christian faith or communicate the word to this child or in any way disciple this child. Now the equation, the pastoral equation, is bigger than just the individual child. It's by baptizing this child, am I confirming these people in their false belief that baptism is in fact just a check, something you can mock and check off, something completely unimportant, and the church is just here to do this completely unimportant checkoff box for you, and everything is, you know, all your unbelief and all your um, despising of baptism and the gifts of God is, is just fine with us, we'll go ahead and do it. Mm, I don't think so. So there are times in which you'd say, until you'll meet with me and understand what baptism really is, I'm not going to baptize your child. It's not a check mark. It's not what you think it is. Nor, nor are we going to take the holy things of Almighty God himself and pretend as if they're just an appeasement of your parents. Okay. This is to trivialize things to a an obscene level. <laughs> so this is some of the pastoral work that goes then in. And I mean, in my, in my pastor, I've maybe only encountered this a handful of times. And uh, in a wild anecdotal testament to the sinful nature, there were parents in just this similar circumstance who ended up going through like a 12-week new members class, thorough catechization, affirmed and assented to all of it. We did the baptism. We were prepared to welcome them all into membership, and they were gone. And their phone was never answered. So, you never know. You never know what you're dealing with. But um, this is, uh, those are the dynamics involved. It's not just so easy as, oh, there's somebody who wants to be baptized. Baptize. Uh, there are all kinds of um, obstacles to that baptism, misunderstandings about that baptism that you want to get sorted out ahead of time before you baptize um, so that you don't end up doing greater spiritual damage just with this narrow-minded focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a similar situation. We had a, a grandson when he was five. 
He had questions about the Bible because he had seen me reading, and over the course of a week, we went into Genesis and talked about creation and Noah and baptism. And at the end of all of that, he understood, mm-hmm. and he wanted to be baptized, and he had visited with me to an LCMS church where he lived. He saw somebody baptized. Mm. He wanted to be. Then his dad found out and said, absolutely not. Yeah. Now he's 14. Yeah. It's not set foot in a church, yeah. and it remains to be seen how God will work, mm-hmm. but it was very sad. It is sad, yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. And it is an opportunity to pray. It is an opportunity to, um, you know, none other than St. Augustine, of course, famously was converted by his mother's ceaseless prayer for who knows how many years. I can't recall if it's even enumerated, but that is a, a testimony of the hope we have. Again, the goal being we're, we're zealous to make disciples, but we're not zealous to let the Lord be mocked or let his gifts be trampled upon or cast our pearls before swine. So that sometimes takes a lot of fetching out, and um, in some occasions it's a, it's a group think too because I come to the elders of the congregation and I say these are the circumstances. What should we do? And we hash it out, and we talk it out, and we look at all the different angles together, and we come up with a plan. And sometimes even, you know, there's a wrinkle in the reaction to the plan. And so we'll reconvene and say, okay, now what do we think about this? What's the right thing to do? Because some of these things are complicated enough and difficult enough that uh, you, you, want, you want the mind of Christ, you want the whole body of Christ, uh, especially our elders working on that, right? Yeah, please. I mean, I look at baptism as supernatural. God is doing the work. God is doing the regeneration, the rebirth. So, if you explain things to that couple in that way, and you and they obviously have somewhat of an understanding, they went through twelve weeks of class that it was worthy enough for them to sit through that. That's a big commitment. Where do you just say, okay, now it's God's job? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, exactly. and I have to step back because there, when we start saying, are you really ready to understand baptism, which none of us really get mm. completely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly. I see your point. Then we're stepping into a, a, a God's judgmental role. Mm-hmm. Which is scary. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would certainly avoid that. So um, if, if we're addressing one error, the opposite error would be trying to set up obstacles that people have to achieve before they get baptized or something like that. Clearly, I want to stay clear of that, setting up a bunch of conditions. Yeah, you're going to find times where you, uh, even after you've done it, like that particular couple, I don't feel good about this. What's happening now? But that's where you have to let go, let God yeah. The, so the pastoral task, though, is a little more specific, just in the sense of recognizing the goal of our Lord is to make disciples, and then he gives us these two means. So that's got to always be my frame. I'm a man under orders, and so my frame is to make disciples. And where I know that, that this is being manipulated and not in such a way it's going to make disciples, right, 
then I should hesitate and I should pause and see and think and think with the elders if this and is the my, right thing to do. Right, right. That says, you know, remember when, yeah, Grandma really, yeah, you know, and I hope someday you can see it. Yeah, thank you for the comments. All right, any, uh, anything else on this particular, on this particular point? Okay, so faith then, I, where, where we're tying in this is, faith is going to be in the Word of God, and of course the sacraments are Word of God and sign, I mean, generally understood in this frame. There's much more to it than that. But that's, what, that's what's at the essence of the sacrament is the word of Christ. This is my body, this is my blood, or I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so faith apprehends those words with the water, with the bread, become his body, the wine, become his blood. These are the things we apprehend by faith. So let's look at question 153 then. But how does faith apprehend and embrace the object that is proper to it? First, it learns from the Word of God to recognize the person, office, merit, and benefits of Christ. All these things it holds to be altogether true and certain. Second, justifying faith apprehends all those things not as simple history, nor only insofar as they are in themselves true in general, but in such a way that it specifically includes the person of the believer in that promise of grace, so that each believer apprehends and receives Christ in the word and the sacraments with true confidence of the heart as given personally to him and applies them to himself individually. And though this faith is often attacked by various temptations and of itself is weak and languid, yet it surely is faith by which each one specially or warmly believes and trusts that sins are forgiven him by God for the sake of Christ, that he is received into grace, and that he is adopted into the sonship of God. All right, and then just a ton of scripture verses to prove the point. So later on, you'll get this threefold distinction, and it's, it's a helpful way to just reflect on the biblical data and reflect on faith. So uh, the Lutheran scholastics will talk about um, notitia, essentia, and fiducia. So notitia is the mere knowledge of the facts, and it's not yet assent to the facts. So um, someone can have an awareness of what the Bible says. Uh, like I think of well, who's a famous person who talks all the time. Like Joe Rogan um, has a kind of notitia about the general points, a, a notion, a, a knowledge about what the Bible says. Okay, But does he have essentia? Does he assent to its veracity? No. 
Okay, not yet. Yeah, not yet. Exactly. Okay, so we're still even at essentia, though not at fiducia, which is trust. So remember when James in his epistles says, "Even the demons believe." Okay, well, what's meant there? The demons have notitia; they have the knowledge. They have essentia; they know that that knowledge is true and believe it to be true. Okay, they know that Jesus is the Son of God. They know now that he's died for the sins of the world, and they're doomed. Okay, but do they have any kind of saving trust in Jesus? No, and frankly, no promise has been given them for them to believe, but they lack that fiducia. So they have faith in Christ, but it's not faith the way a Christian should have faith in Christ. And that's precisely James' point. The faith you, Christ, you Christians, in quotes, are claiming to have is indistinguishable from the faith of demons. That's his point. Unless it be a living faith, a fruitful and active faith, I can't tell the difference between your faith and the faith of demons. Don't think you're justified by such a faith. Such a faith won't justify you at all. The only faith that'll justify you is a faith that works. Look at Abraham. Look at Rahab. Rahab's the greatest one because that just is a kick to the groin of anyone who would try to make that about meriting heaven. She's a prostitute for crying out loud. So she's hardly merited heaven by her active faith and her good works. Rather, she's been redeemed and saved by Christ through faith, and her faith works itself out, uh, especially in the heroic action of the, you know, the scarlet cloth for the sake of uh, the spies. Okay, so this threefold distinction can be very helpful. It, we don't, as Christians, merely know the facts nor do we merely assent to the facts that they're true, but fiducia is we entrust ourselves to Jesus. So just this beautiful kind of line of, I am yours, save me. It just comes right out of the Psalms. And that's the essence of faith. So there's nothing in myself by which I could save myself. There's not a single merit that I'm going to, like when Christ says, what reason do I have to let you into heaven? It's not going to be, a, well, I served you as a pastor. Wrong. <laughs> well, I was a Christian my whole life. Wrong. You know, all of these things are blemished, dirty, warty kinds of things. They're, uh, they're an abomination when it comes to what God does require and the righteous, perfect requirements of his law. You'd be a fool to even offer those things, right? There's zero in myself that merits eternal life or that merits God's gracious favor. So in that sense, the answer is there's absolutely no reason at all. Now, because I know the gospel and because we know the gospel, the answer is because of you, O Lord, because of your righteousness that you've credited to me, because of your blood shed on the cross, because of your selfless and eternal love, because before the foundation of the world, you knew me and knew what a rotten, twisted branch and tree I would be, fruitless and wicked in every way, and yet you loved me and saved me and chose to make me new. So all of it is... You know, all of the rationale and reason for us to be saved is for the sake of or on account of Christ. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> Appreciate it. See, I'm learning too on the account of. I like that. 
I like that. You know? We have to go over these things in our minds. It's like, I haven't thought about this for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, exactly. This, yes. Theology, unfortunately, is a perishable thing. <laughs> it's always dying. We have to constantly be reminded and it has to be revivified in us. So, so this... Um, oh, yes. I know I'm jumping back. Okay. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Especially those who are baptized believers who have eyes to see, I don't doubt that you could make a distinction there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so fiducia being then the heart and center of faith and the true uh, living, saving faith. And I know that that frame isn't Chemnitz's frame precisely, but I think it just serves to drive home the point that he's making, that it is, uh, even though faith is itself attacked and is sometimes very weak and languid, it is um, a faith which, as he puts it, one specially or warmly believes and trusts. That's the language of fiducia, just throwing yourself on the mercy of Christ. There's like, you know, if you, if you won't save me, there is no saving me. Now, that's faith. So faith at its root is just emptied out of all pretenses and receives Christ or nothing. That's faith. Okay? Looks like we have time to go on to question 154. What if a secure Epicurean, okay, we've covered what that means before, a secure Epicurean without repentance. So an Epicurean is just a pleasure seeker, a lawless one, one who says Christ has set me free to do whatever I want. I'm just, you know, he loves forgiving, I love sinning, let's go for it. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound while St. Paul says absolutely not, I say absolutely so. That's a secure Epicurean. If a secure Epicurean without repentance, holding fast to the intent to continue in sins, forms this conviction that he nevertheless has a merciful God, is that kind of conviction true and justifying faith? What do you think? By no means, says Chemnitz. So there is a false faith. Of course, we're going we're to get an example of that, not this identical thing um, in the coming gospel text. Well, I guess not this week. I guess next week, Vicar's going to be preaching on it. But where, where you have those who say, Lord, Lord, look at all the special things we've done for you. Okay. So here you have a different example, a different subset of this idea that you can, say, you can be so self-deceived that you say, hey, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I knew you not. So that's true for those who would justify themselves and brag before God, and that's true for those who, in this case, um, would just use Jesus as, um, hey, I, you're the guy who covers my sins while I go sinning with impunity. 
That's, that's, isn't that to not know the Lord or to have him not know you? Indeed. So that's Chemnitz's answer, thoroughly biblical, right, by no means. He continues, for faith is not this kind of conviction, that it is immaterial before God to remain in sins or desist from sins, to love sins or detest them. True faith, likewise, does not seek this in Christ, that it dares to indulge in sins and give rein to them securely and freely without any fear in the hope of impunity. But the nature and property of true faith is seen and recognized in sincere repentance, namely when the heart acknowledges its sins in such a way that it seriously shudders in acknowledging the wrath of God and no longer delights in sin, but is seriously and earnestly troubled, lest it fall into danger of eternal damnation. So, again, just kind of to summarize here, God cannot be mocked in this way either, that we treat him as though like it was just some kind of game, or he's some kind of theological system in the sky. He's some sort of robot or computer program we lose sight of the fact that he is, we, and we don't have the language for this, so forgive me, but he's like a person, a being, a, someone with, you know, who, has, who runs out of patience. Okay. Um, someone who is uh, slow to anger, but then indeed can and does have anger. Okay, So it's better to, even though this is technically not proper, it's better to think of God as a person, Okay, um, with a personality, that's how he presents himself in Scripture. It's how he reveals himself to us. That's a far better way of looking at it than as if God were some sort of system, and as long as I check the box of going to church and remembering my baptism, I can just live however I want, and God's immovable, and um, so I just trust in his immovability and predicate everything. So the Scriptures would also generally call this kind of attitude presumptuous sins. So you're presuming upon the grace of God and in and of and actually like in such a way that you're pushing God off his throne and you're sitting there by means of your sin. Okay. And by means of like, oh of course he'll forgive me. He's my servant. You know, that kind of attitude, right? Okay, so let's carry on a little further, then I'll have a comment in the other direction. Chemnitz writes, when faith in such repentance or contrition looks around for Christ, seeks him, looks to him, and apprehends him, desiring, seeking, believing, and trusting that sins are remitted to him for the sake of Christ, etc., this very thing is a very sure indication of true and justifying faith. Okay. So is Chemnitz saying then that you know, since being having true faith means constantly fighting against sin and truly putting sins behind us, does that mean that we're there all for all, all therefore perfect? No. And so that's the way the devil wants to judo flip this line of thinking, right? He wants to judo flip this to you know take the energy and put it in the other direction, so that. Um, okay, well, if I'm a true Christian, I should be hating and despising my sin and living in repentance and contrition, and I should be making progress. Satan says, yes, and how long have you been a Christian for, and how are you doing? And when you answer truthfully, he he will then say, oh, so you're not really a Christian at all. 
So all your fruit's rotten, you have no fruit. Okay. So just don't misunderstand Chemnitz himself as saying that, or the scriptures themselves as saying that. Be aware that the devil's ready there to judo flip that into, so that you fall into what? Despair. That's what's on that end of the spiritual spectrum is despair. So I, I guess I'm just a hypocrite, and I've never been a Christian. All right, so what's the opposite end when we're looking at this particular spiritual dynamic? What's the opposite end of despair? The kind of prideful Epicureanism that just goes on sinning that grace may abound. And as long as I just keep punching my teeth, I mean, this can take all forms. As long as I keep, as long as the priest keeps sacrificing the Mass for me, we're all good. As long as I keep remembering my baptism, we're all good. Okay? This kind of hardened Epicurean, go on sinning that grace may abound. Um, and Satan would love to push you in that, and he pushes you in that because he goes, you really understand the gospel, and you're really living the gospel, and you don't want to let the law in whatsoever because all the law is going to do is condemn you and make you sorrowful and sad and maybe make you actually address things in your life. So no law, just gospel, just living in the, in the fullness of the gospel, in the full embrace of God's graciousness. Okay, that's the pathway into uh, this other error, which is Epicureanism. Um, you can call it that. You can call it uh, security. That's sometimes how the spiritual label put upon it. Those are the two ditches you want to avoid. God wants you in the, in the middle. Satan wants you on, in either ditch. Make sense? Okay. All right, 155, and then we'll be done. But you may find many who boast that they have faith, though they neglect and despise the word and sacraments. Does the world have any people like this? Oh, I'm a Christian. When's the last time you went to church? Well, I couldn't tell you. But I'm a Christian, better than you. And in fact, I'm such a Christian that I sit in judgment over the entire church of Christ on earth, and thus wouldn't deign to stoop down and attend such an evil, wicked institution as that. There is a pride lurking right beneath the surface in, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church because the church is the problem. There's a huge pride there masquerading as humility. Sometimes masquerading as victimhood because we love to be the victims. So, you know, the church did me wrong. Pastor so-and-so did me wrong. I'm justified in breaking God's third commandment. (laughs) Good luck making that argument before the judgment seat. So, my child, why didn't you go to church for, checks notes, 55 years? Oh, because Pastor so-and-so, way back in 1977, said something from the pulpit that was disagreeable and offensive. Oh, on account of that, you saw fit to neglect my commandment for 55 years. You thought that that was the rational way to proceed. So, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you all are here, but hopefully, as you engage with those who are in your lives, and I know they're in your lives, they're in my life, it's inescapable right now at this time in this place, who are Christian or claim to be Christian but want nothing to do with the word and sacraments, not only are they in a deadly spiritual position, but watch the pride lurking underneath this kind of humility, or even sometimes this kind of, oh, if I darken the door of a church, it would fall in on me, which sounds humble, but the more you probe into that thought, it's complete pride and arrogance, just masquerading as humility. More often we hear, well, 
Right, of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, now, I mean, it, yeah, it's kind of this remarkable thing. I, I hate to get off on this topic because this is an easy hobby horse for pastors to just ride around on all day long. But, you know, when you think of, when you think of what God actually asks, I mean, I, I forget off the top of my head how many hours in the week there are. 24 times 7, whatever that is, if somebody is quicker at math than me. 164, I don't know what it is. Somebody do the math. <laughs> How many hours does God ask? 168, thank you. I knew the four didn't sound right. 168. Out of 168 hours, what does God ask? He, your heavenly father says, hey, come to my house and hang out with me for an hour. And you go, you know, Lord, I, I'm just too busy. Just, just too busy. I can't, I can't manage that. That's my only day to sleep in. That's my only day to do laundry. That's my only day to go to the beach. Is it? And then, and then I think you can start to see how ugly the sinful nature is in us, even as Christians, because it's a struggle to go to church sometimes. It's, I mean, if you're in the habit, you've done it your whole life, it gets easier, of course, but it's kind of a struggle, especially if you're young and there's other temptations. But when you really think about it and put it that way, it becomes a profoundly ugly thing. You go, oh yeah, I love God. Oh yeah, I'm a serious Christian. I refuse to give him one out of 168 hours. Okay, well. It's not really an hour. I got a half hour drive here. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. That's exactly what my play, uh, that's exactly what my flesh says too. So yeah, you're right. Um, two hours in 168. How's that? Yeah. What's that? I'll stream that way I can be in my pajamas and have my coffee, which is more important than being with the saints and having the Lord's Supper. Yeah, it's, uh, so, yeah, I, that's tongue-in-cheek for those of you listening online. Okay, well, that's probably enough for today. We'll get back into this faith and looking at the genuineness of faith and looking at where faith can sometimes masquerade as if it were real when in fact it's not. The Lord be with you.